During Noah's lifetime, people lived life, embraced depravity, and ignored God's warnings. Romans 1, 18-32 details the depths of human depravity in the days leading up to the flood. Verses 18 and 19 of Romans 1 provide the general charge. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. First general charge here is they were pushing the truth away from themselves. And then in verses 20 through 32, it lays out six specific charges of how they had pushed the truth away from themselves. The first indictment was inexcusable ignorance. Inexcusable ignorance. Verse 20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Since creation, God revealed Himself and His power to the people. And they chose to ignore God. The second indictment is ingratitude. Romans 1.21 For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. They were thankless and refused to worship the Creator. First indictment, inexcusable ignorance. Second indictment, ingratitude. The third indictment, was insolence. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. The people thought themselves to be wise, but God says, no, they were nothing but fools. The fourth said in his heart, there is no God. The fourth indictment was idolatry. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. In other words, they traded in God's glory for idols, idols that represented people, birds, animals, and reptiles. The fifth indictment was immorality, verse 24 to 27. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their heart to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason... God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman, and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men, committing indecent acts, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And so we have our fifth indictment of immorality. By the time of Noah, the world was embracing polygamy, bigamy, lesbianism, and homosexuality. The sixth indictment is found in verses 28 to 32, and that indictment is incorrigibility. Again, they were first charged with inexcusable ignorance, secondly, ingratitude, third, insolence, fourth, idolatry, fifth, immorality, and sixth, incorrigibility. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, 
insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. The people embrace their wickedness. Sin was rampant and there was no shame. And I believe that today these same six indictments can very well be made of the United States of America. In many ways, Western civilization is living as they did in the days of Noah. The postmodern era has resulted in people living their lives without God and embracing depravity to its fullest. Friends, God will not be mocked. If humanity sows immorality, it will reap judgment. And the pages of Scripture are filled with many examples. Sodom and Gomorrah, Egypt, Israel, Judah, Nineveh, and Babylon. So how is a believer, how are we to live in an age of rampant sin and depravity? Genesis 7 provides three truths for us. Genesis 7 provides three truths for living in an age of rampant sin and depravity. First, we'll see that God is still sovereign. Truth number one, God is still sovereign. Truth number two, the righteous are still to be obedient. The righteous are still to be obedient. And truth number three, the unrighteous will be judged. The unrighteous will be judged. So let's look at our first truth. Truth number one, God is still sovereign. Now God's sovereignty or His Lordship, that's what we talk about the Lordship of Christ, we're talking about His sovereignty, depicts His control over the affairs of creation. And He is sovereign over creation because He is the Creator of all things. His sovereignty means that everything occurs according to His divine will, Ephesians 1.11. In Genesis 7, God's sovereignty is on full display in His invitation, instruction, and intention. Consider God's sovereign invitation in verse 1 of Genesis 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household. For you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Then the Lord said to Noah. The word then indicates a period, particularly a 120 years that had passed since God commanded Noah to build the ark in Genesis 6.13. So that little word then, in verse 1, contains 120 years between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. And the first thing that God says to Noah is, Enter the ark. Now the word enter here can be translated as come. It's not a command to, to Noah to enter the ark. Rather, it's an invitation to Noah to enter the ark. And the invitation implies that God would be with him. The invitation to Noah is a type of God's invitation in the gospel given to sinners. Come unto me, all ye that labor, and I will give you rest. And like the ark, it is in Christ alone where one can find safety when death and judgment come. God's sovereign invitation extended not only to Noah, but to his entire family, his wife his three sons, and their wives. God extends this invitation because of Noah's righteousness. According to Genesis 6, 8-9, Noah was not only a righteous man, but a blameless man. 
The fact that he was righteous means that he was conforming himself to a moral standard. That he was blameless means that he was a person of unimpeachable integrity. Now God says, I have seen Noah's righteousness. That God saw Noah's righteousness contrasts with Genesis 6, 5, and 12, where God saw the wickedness of Noah's generation. The phrase before me implies that Noah had been found beyond reproach by the divine judge. And in this time, or in this generation, marks out Noah to be uniquely righteous among his contemporaries. In essence, God is saying to Noah that he was the only one living who had been faithful to God. My friends, when one keeps themselves pure in times of iniquity, God will keep them safe in times of calamity. Now let's notice here God's sovereign instruction in verses 2 to 3. So we have his invitation in verse 1 to come into the ark. Now we have his sovereign instruction in verses 2 to 3. You shall take with you every clean animal by sevens, a male and a female. And of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and a female. Also of the birds of the sky, by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. Verses 2 and 3 of Genesis 7. Previously, God had instructed Noah to take a single pair, a male and a female, of each creature. Genesis 6, 19 and 20. But here God expands upon that instruction. Noah was to take seven pairs of each clean animal and one pair of each unclean animal. And in addition to the clean and unclean animals, he was to take seven pairs of each bird. Now the division here between clean and unclean is explained in Leviticus 11. And that Noah distinguished between clean and unclean animals underscores God's law was known to humanity before it was written down at Sinai. The clean animals were those which were approved by God for consumption and sacrifice. The purpose of God's sovereign instruction was to keep offspring alive. The pairing of both clean animals and unclean animals and birds according to their gender, i.e. male and female, anticipates God's post-Diluvian command for them to breed abundantly and be fruitful and multiply, as we'll see later in Genesis 8:17. God sovereignly determined to preserve the species and instructed Noah how to do it. So we see God's sovereign invitation, His sovereign instruction, and now verse 4 of Genesis 7, we have God's sovereign intention. Genesis 7:4 says, After seven more days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Now God's sovereign intention is presented here in three parts. One, the rain will begin after seven days. Two, the rain will last forty days. And three, all living things will be destroyed. And the details provided here demonstrate that God's intention is specific and determined. God's first intention is to judge the earth after seven more days. After 120 years, the world is now just one week away from God's judgment. God, who is slow to anger, offers a final week to the unrighteous to repent. God's second intention is to send rain for 40 days and nights. 
When God says, I will send rain, he's not acting on a whim. The verb will send is a causative verb, meaning that God personally will cause the rain. He's going to send the rain. He's determined. Rain is not left to chance, but it is God's sovereign intention. Now, it's been supposed by some that the flood is the first occurrence of rain. However, the idea that it did not rain until the flood is not sustainable by Scripture. One, Scripture says that all things were created within the six days of creation, Colossians 1.16. And all things includes rain, lightning, and wind, according to Jeremiah 10, 12-13. It says that uh, when he uttered his voice, there was a tumult of water in the heavens. He causes the clouds to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. Now, back in Genesis 1-6, it stated that God separated the waters above and the waters below. The waters below were those waters below the heavens, which were formed into seas on day three. The waters above are the water vapors that gather in the atmosphere, form clouds, and fall to the earth as some form of precipitation. Back Job 38, verse 8-10 to 10 says, who enclosed the sea with doors? When bursting forth, it went out from the womb. When I made a cloud, its garment, and the thick darkness, its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it, and, I, and set a bolt and doors. The creation of clouds here, in Job 38, verse 8 to 10, it demands the creation of what is called the hydrologic cycle. Scripture testifies to the divine creation of what we call the hydrologic cycle. Job 36, verse 27 and 28, For he draws up the drops of water, they distill rain from the midst, which the clouds pour down. They drip upon man abundantly. He draws up drops of water. That's evaporation. The rain distills from the mist. It's the process of condensation. And then the mist forms water vapors joined with various aerosols that form water droplets and then pours down rain, which is the process of precipitation. When God rested on the seventh day, He rested from His creative acts and took up a new work of conservation. By the seventh day, God completed His works which He had done and rested from all the work which he had done. Colossians 1.17 tells us that he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. God finished the creative work that he accomplished in the six days of creation. God is not creating any new physical elements. God's work of conservation, however, is using the various physical processes that he created to recycle and retask pre-existing matter energy according to his will. Thus, God did not create rain at the time of the flood. God created the process to produce rain back at creation. Also, the term rain, as used in Genesis 7:12, refers to heavy and continuous rain. So it's not that rain was all of a sudden something new, but God was going to send rain that was heavy and continuous, and here's what's new, for 40 days and nights. That phrase emphasizes the continuity of rain all day and all night for 40 days. So God's third intention is that all living things will be destroyed. All living things will be destroyed. Again, his first intention was that it would rain after seven days. 
Third, that rain would last for 40 days. And now third, all living things will be destroyed. All living things will be destroyed. God says, I will blot out every living thing that I have made. God does not shrink from responsibility. God is the agent of destruction. He sovereignly intends to blot out what he formerly made. And the verb blot out here, maha, means to erase, destroy, or remove a stain. Living thing is a rare term that appears only three times in the Old Testament, first time here, and it speaks collectively of creatures as a group. In other words, all animals and all humans. God intends to destroy every living animal and human outside of the ark because of the great wickedness of humanity. And so in these first four verses, we see that God is sovereign. And whether we were living then or we're living today, and today is, I believe, much like then. It's a day we are living in an age of rampant sin and depravity. We need to remember truth number one, that God is still sovereign. God is still sovereign. He is still inviting people to receive the gospel. He is still uh, sovereignly instructing us through his word. And he is, still has a sovereign intention. He will do all that He has said He will do. And as believers, we can cling to that truth of God's sovereignty. Truth number two, the righteous are still to be obedient. The righteous are still to be obedient. Here we're going to look at Genesis 7, verses 5 to 9 and 13 to 16. It says, Noah did according to all the Lord had commanded him. Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood, of clean animals and animals that are not clean, and birds and everything that creeps on the ground. There went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. On the same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast after its kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah, by twos of all flesh, in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. God has stated in his word that Noah was a righteous man. And verse 5 tells us exactly what a righteous person does. They obey all that the Lord commanded them to do. Now verses 7 through 9 and verses 13 through 15 detail how Noah obeyed the Lord. Noah took on board the ark both the clean and unclean animals, the birds and the creeping things. Then Noah and his family also boarded the ark. Now while both citations in verses 7 through 9 and 13 through 15 are nearly identical, the repetition here is not without warrant. The repetition demonstrates that Noah carried out the divine directive precisely as God commanded him. 
specifically the use of the terms by two, every kind, clean and unclean, shows Noah's obedience to God's command as given in Genesis 6, 18-19 and Genesis 7, 2-3. Also take notice of the record of Noah's age. The record of Noah's age is the first time in Scripture that an individual's age is given uh, or tied to a specific event. Noah was 600 years old when the flood came and 601 when the flood ended. Now by examining Genesis 7 and 8 and building a biblical chronology of the flood, it can be determined that Noah spent 300 and 77 days quarantined in the ark. And significantly, Scripture records not one complaint about the quarantine from the lips of Noah or his family. Now let's take notice of the use of the phrase, after its kind, when referencing the beast, cattle, creeping things, and birds. The phrase indicates that God created them with fixicity of species. Yes, there's variety within a species. One species cannot become a different species. And by examining all the extinct and non-extinct species, there would have been a maximum of 75,000 species on the ark. Also, there was no need for animals to be fully grown, which would allow for space. And so with 75,000 species on board, the ark would have only been 60% full. The remaining 40% of the ark would have been used for storage and living accommodations. Now the concluding statement of verse 16 is significant. It states, the Lord closed it behind him. That is, the Lord closed the door behind him. Noah and his family did as God commanded, and the Lord blesses them by closing the door of the ark. That God closed the door and not Noah indicates that all who resided within the ark were under his divine protective care. God shut and sealed the door so that the waters raging outside the ark could not penetrate. God saved Noah and his household while dooming all those outside of the ark. And so living in an age of rampant sin and depravity, we need to remember truth number one, that God is sovereign. But truth number two, the righteous still need to be obedient. Just because we're living in a day and an age of rampant sin and depravity is no excuse for the righteous to not be obedient or to be disobedient to God. Now let's look at our tr third truth, truth number three. The unrighteous will be judged. The unrighteous will be judged. And here we're going to read verses 10 through 12 of Genesis 7 and verses 17 to 24. It came about after the seven days, the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Now verse 17. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The waters prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits higher 
and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds, cattle, beasts, every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth, and all mankind. Of all that was on dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animal to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left, together with those that were with him in the ark. The waters prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Here's a question. What was it like for the unrighteous on the day the flood came? The scriptures record that the people were going along their lives with no thought of their self-impending doom. Matthew 24, 38 to 39 says that the people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. For 120 years, Noah prepared the ark, preaching repentance. And nevertheless, such a demonstration and declaration had no impact. Sadly, such willing indifference is so often the case with the unrighteous in the face of God's judgment. How many in those final moments sought repentance with tears, but did not find it? Again, we're told after seven days indicates the time that Noah, his family, the animals, and the birds have been on the ark before the rain begins. According to the Targum Pseudo-Jonathan, the seven days signifies a final opportunity for the unrighteous to repent. The flood begins during the 600th year of Noah's life. And then we're told on the second month of the 17th day of the month, on the same day, now that's a specific statement of time. God's judgment upon the unrighteous occurred at a specific moment in time. He is a God of order and exactness. Now to determine the date of the beginning of the flood, we have to determine what the second month is. And the Hebrews follow two calendars, a sacred calendar and a civil calendar. Both calendars share the same months. Each month is composed of 30 days. The sacred calendar, which is used to observe worship and other religious services, begins with the month Nisan, which would be our March or April. The civil calendar, which is used for agriculture and other civil responsibilities, begins with the month Tishra. As the sacred calendar was not instituted until Exodus 12.12, 12, it can be observed that the civil calendar is used in the text. Hence, the flood begins in the month Keshvan, i.e. October or November. And establishing the start of the flood is going to have significant impact prophetically on Genesis chapter 8. So the second month of the civil calendar is also significant because it puts Noah's entrance into the ark after the harvest season. God provided provisions for the righteous before sending judgment upon the unrighteous. He does not always keep the righteous from trouble, but God always preserves and provides for them through the trial. And when times of judgment come, the righteous should shelter under God's protection until the indignation passes. Isaiah 26, 20 to 21, Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your door behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. 
For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. Now that is what you call a divine quarantine. He's telling the people, he's telling the righteous, listen, shelter, quarantine yourself under God's protection until the judgment passes. Enter your rooms, close your door behind you, and hide there until indignation runs its course. Thus, after seven days, on the 17th day of the second month, Yahweh set in motion the uncreation of the world. God unleashed the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky upon the earth. He brought to bear on an unsuspecting world the waters previously separated on the second day of creation for the sole purpose of destroying the very creatures He had created. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah graphically records these events. In Isaiah 24, verse 18 to 20, he says, For the windows are above are opened, and the foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken asunder. The earth is split through. The earth is shaken violently. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard, and it totters like a shack. For its transgressions is heavy upon it, and it will fall never to rise again. Now the fountains of the great deep which burst open refer to massive shifting of the earth's crust, which caused the floors of the ocean to break open and release reservoirs of subterranean waters. The shifting of the earth's crust also resulted in worldwide earthquakes, which triggered tidal waves and tsunamis. As well, it would have resulted in worldwide volcanic eruptions, which spewed smoke and ash into the atmosphere, blotting out the sun and cooling the earth. Now, some believe that the phrase floodgates of the sky refers to a canopy of water above the earth. The theory purports that God gathered a canopy of water around the earth, producing um, a greenhouse effect, which supposedly explains the long lifespans of the antediluvian world. This same theory purports that this canopy collapsed, providing the rain for the flood of Genesis 6. Now, there are several problems with this theory. One, it contradicts the teaching of Scripture. Psalm 148, 1-4, which was written after the flood, implies that the waters above are still presently existing. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him all His angels. Praise Him all His hosts. Praise Him sun and moon. Praise Him all stars of light. Praise Him highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Furthermore, verse 5 and 6 of Psalm 148, states that God decreed the heavens, the angels, the sun, moon, and stars, and the waters above to last forever. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. He has established them forever and ever. He has made a decree which will not pass away. If the waters above refer to a canopy that collapsed, then it did not last forever, and God failed to keep His word. Two, the canopy theory does not pass the scientific method. The theory claims that water vapor would protect the earth from harmful ultraviolet rays. In reality, water vapor does not provide sufficient shielding against ultraviolet rays. It's just as easy to be sunburned on a cloudy day as it is on a sunny day. Three, a water canopy would have cooked the earth. Water vapors absorb infrared radiation and account for 66 to 95 percent of the greenhouse effects on the earth. This means that a canopy of water containing enough water to flood the earth, would have cooked the earth. 
The floodgates of the sky is not a canopy of water. It's a gathering of clouds which will produce a rainstorm. As previously stated, God created clouds and rain during the six days of creation. And what God is doing here is causing a massive gathering of clouds which will produce a heavy and continuous rainstorm for 40 days and nights. See, my friends, the flood was not just a memorable rain event, but a historical event that is unprecedented in human history. As God promised, it rained heavily and continuously for 40 days. As God promised, the flood continued to cover the earth for an additional 110 days. The abatement of water from off the earth did not begin until 150 days or five months after the rain began. And if there's any doubt as to the global aspect of the flood, the scripture states that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. All the high mountains indicates not some of the mountains, but every mountain on the planet. The term covered is to conceal or to hide. In other words, all the mountains were hidden under the water. Additionally, the text states that the waters rose above the mountaintops some 15 cubits or 20 feet, 22 feet rather. There is no mountain high enough that the unrighteous might run to avoid God's judgment. Jeremiah 49, 16, As for the terror of you, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you, O you who live in the clefts of the rock, who occupy the height of the hill. Though you make as your nest as high as an eagle's, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. God's purpose in sending the flood was to judge the unrighteous. Three terms are used here to denote God's hands of judgment. Perished, blotted out, and died. Perish is to lose all bodily functions necessary to sustain life. Blotted out means to erase, destroy, or remove a stain. Died, as used in this context, refers to a violent death received as a penalty for sin. Now the terms perished and blotted out are applied to animals, birds, creeping things, and people. Every living thing lost its bodily functions. God expunged, like a stain, the wickedness of humanity from off the face of the earth. And of note, however, is that the term died is only used in connection to humanity. Any in whose nostril was the breath of the spirit of life died. The breath of the spirit of life parallels God's statement in Genesis 6-3, My spirit will not always strive, i.e. remain with humanity forever. The use of died takes the reader back to the beginning. God told Adam and Eve, if they sinned against him, they would die. They sinned, and death passed upon all humanity, for all have sinned. In Genesis 6, the sin and depravity of humanity had grown so vast that God brought a global pandemic, a worldwide flood, upon the unrighteous, so that they all died. Only Noah was left, together with those that were with him in the ark. So believer, how are we to live in an age of rampant sin and depravity? Well, I believe that Genesis 7 gives us the answer. First, we need to remember that God is sovereign. 
His sovereignty was established at creation, and that sovereignty extends to everyone's day-to-day life. Isaiah 45, verse 7, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. You know, it's easy to accept God's control in times of peace and prosperity. However, in times of difficulty and distress, we are less prone to accept God's sovereignty. But what does Job 2.10 say? Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In times of chaos and calamity, we need to be thankful that God is sovereign and has all these things under His control. What's your attitude? Are you thankful for God's sovereignty? Look around you. There's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of calamity. And what is your attitude, believer? Our attitude should be one of thankfulness to God for His sovereignty. That's not to say we don't have our concerns, we don't, you know, wonder about things. But at the end of the day, it means that you and I put our head on the pillow at night and sleep because God is in control. He knows all of these things long before they've ever happened. Second, we need to remember that as the righteous, we're still to be obedient. Are you being obedient? Or are you just looking around you and saying, well, I'm going to be disobedient? Living in an age of rampant sin and depravity requires us to be obedient. Regardless of politics and polls, or chaos and calamity, God's law still stands. And as such, believer, we must obey what God commands despite the ebb and flow of culture. Like Noah, total obedience to God may mean standing alone. You may have to stand alone. I may have to stand alone. We, as a group of believers, may be standing alone in a world going crazy. But it's better to stand alone with God than to be destroyed with the crowd in a flood of judgment. Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace. Righteousness is conformity to the moral behavior of, that God expects of His people. In other words, righteousness is obedience to His law. The United States is being swept along in a sea of arrogance, greed, selfishness, immorality, and hatred. And as long as sin is tolerated... And as long as sin is embraced, this nation will be disgraced and shamed. And it is all the more incumbent for the righteous to obey God if there is any hope for this nation. And third, we need to remember that God will judge the unrighteous. We are living in, in an age of rampant sin and depravity, but my friends, remember, God will judge the unrighteous. In Psalm 33, verse 12, the psalmist stated, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Although lawmakers end every speech with God bless America, God is not blessing America because America's God is not the Lord, Jesus Christ. America's God is lust, a lust for money, a lust for sensuality, a lust for violence. Christian, you need to awake and realize God's judgment has come upon this nation and world. You need only compare the nightly news 
to the words of Ezekiel 16, 36 to 43. Let me read it. Thus says the Lord God, I will bring on you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And here's how he's going to do it. They will tear down your shrines. That's your statues. They're going to demolish your high places. They're going to strip you of your clothing. They're going to take away your jewels. They're going to leave you naked and bare. They're going to incite a crowd against you. They're going to stone you. They're going to cut you to pieces with their sword. They're going to burn your houses with fire. They're going to execute judgments on you in the sight of many. Because you have enraged me by all these things, behold, I in turn will bring your conduct down on your own head, declares the Lord God. My friends, we shouldn't be surprised by anything that we're seeing. This nation has shunned their face and turned themselves from God. They have committed gross immorality, murder, hate, on and on the list goes. And as a result, God has brought judgment in both calamity and chaos. Christian, beware. If God blotted out the world of Noah's day, how long before God will blot out this country? Now, I know that's not something anyone wants to think about, but the reality is we must give thought. How long before God blots out the church for a failure to call the nation to repentance? 1 Peter 4, 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? God has a final word for all to hear. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the passage you've put before us today. Father, for this reminder of these truths, especially living in days of rampant sin and depravity. Father, that, Lord, we might remember that you are sovereign. You are the Lord. All these things are in your control. Nothing catches you off guard. Nothing is unknown to you. And, Father, oftentimes these things are directly brought about by your hand. It's our responsibility to look and examine and find out what you have for us in it. And so I pray to that end you might show us. And, Father, that, Lord, we would find ourselves to be righteous before you, that, Lord, we be conforming to your holy standard. Oh, Lord, it's easy to give in to the crowd. It's easy to go along with uh, the, 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 the sin and depravity of the age in which we live. But, Father, you have called us to be distinct, to be set apart ones, to be holy, to be blameless, to be undefiled. And so, Father, I pray that you might begin in us to examine our own lives, and to forsake and confess any and all things, Father, that are unrighteous. And that, Lord, we might pursue righteousness. That we might be blameless. That we might be people of integrity in a crazy world on its way to hell. Father, I pray as well that in light of the fact that judgment has come, and more judgment will come, that, Father, you might call us, like Noah, to preach the gospel 
if we don't preach the gospel, if we don't maintain righteous living, if we don't examine ourselves, Father, judgment will come upon this church. Judgment will come upon the, your church in this nation and around this world. And I believe, Father, you have already begun doing that. You're separating the men from the boys, as they say. You're separating the wheat from the chaff. I pray, Father, that we might use this time not only to rally together, but that we may use this time now more than ever to preach the gospel, to pe preach repentance, to challenge the ungodly, to seek the Lord while He can be found, because, Lord, the day is coming when you will no longer be found. Help us to that end, Father. Give us a holy boldness to proclaim to a lost and dying world, regardless of whether they accept or reject, that we would proclaim the gospel while you can be found. We ask this in your Son's precious and holy name. Amen.